For more in-depth perspectives and interesting stories, sign up for our daily newsletter at tvo.org/daily. The agenda's first week of this our 15th season looked at kids' mental health during this pandemic and what the economy needs in the days and months ahead to recover. The agenda's week in review begins getting caught up on a summer of Canadian politics. When Mr. Morneau was shown the door, I mean, he resigned because he could see what was happening to him. He had no support in the cabinet. The Liberals have no business Liberals anymore. The Liberal cabinets in the past, going back to Pierre Trudeau and Jean Chrétien, always had bending Liberals and business Liberals. This government has no business Liberals. They're all spending Liberals, every one of them, including the Prime Minister. So the next budget is going to be extremely expansionist. Money is going to be spent left, right, and center. And it's at that point that they'll use the skills that we've heard today from our polling friends as to whether they should go for an election or not. The last point I'd make is elections are very unpredictable. Mr. Trudeau ought to know that because the first time he won, he started the campaign in third place and Tom Mulcair was measuring the drapes at 24 Sussex Drive and the Liberals won the election. Last time, they sunk during the campaign. By the way, I think it's interesting that the polling numbers show the Liberals ahead by 12 points among women but if they're even with the Conservatives overall, they got to be about 10 or 12 points behind among men. And that's a bit of a problem for the Liberals. It's hard to form a majority when you're 12 points behind among men. Hmm. Sean, I'd ask you to weigh in on the fortunes or the potential fortunes of the Conservatives at the moment in as much as you've got the Wee scandal, which admittedly is out of the headlines right now, but it certainly has a place in the public consciousness. Having said that, Aaron O'Toole's barely got his feet wet as the leader. Uh, how concerned would you be about pulling down the government's throne speech, knowing that you've got a guy in his literally first months as leader at the helm right now? Well, he's, he's certainly on a steep learning curve, uh, Steve, given the prospect or potential for uh, an election campaign uh, mere weeks away. Uh, to your question um, to, to Jeffrey about whether Mr. Trudeau and his team secretly would like an election, I, I think the answer is yes. The, the, the one... Um, um, entity not on Satchi's um, um, polling, polling figures is Donald Trump, uh, who is uh, deeply unpopular with the Canadian public. And I think Mr. Trudeau's team would actually like the prospect of running a parallel campaign in Canada uh, while the U.S. presidential election um, slumps on. Um, the, Mr. Trump will be counted on to say outrageous things, um, and Mr. O'Toole would be forced to spend most of the campaign uh, responding to questions about Mr. Trump and the extent to which his party and his vision um, uh, converges or diverges uh, with the polarizing president. The other reason why I think uh, that the liberals would like a campaign is if uh, they're brought back with the majority, they'll be able to put the stick in the spokes of the, the WE investigation. The only reason we've gotten as far as we have, of course, is because um, opposition members presently make up a majority of the members on uh, the committees investigating uh, the the grant to uh, to the WE charity uh, prorogation was a short-term attempt to slow that process down. A majority, a new majority mandate uh, would be what the Liberals need to shut it down. Uh, and so, I think all opposition leaders, including Mr. O'Toole, face a difficult question uh, in how they ultimately vote on the speech from the throne and and perhaps. A federal budget. I think there'll be plenty there uh, for the opposition, uh, for the conservatives uh, to oppose and reject. I think uh, mo more pressure will be on Mr. Singh 
uh, and whether the new Democratic Party is prepared to support the liberals, given the likelihood, as Jeffrey says, that the speech from the throne and the, and the budget uh, will advance several uh, progressive priorities. Uh, is that enough to secure NDP support um, or, or not, I think, will be the major question uh, in, in, the, in the upcoming parliamentary session. And let me get Vicky to pick up the story there on the social democratic part of the, uh, of the political ledger. And to that end, Vicky, um, maybe I can ask you to react to it in this respect. You know, for the last two Democratic presidential nomination races, a self-declared septuagenarian socialist has really been right there almost at the finish line, running extremely competitively. Senator, And if you look at the current Democratic Party, you know, you've got, I guess they call themselves the squad, led by uh, AOC, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Congress, Congresswoman from New York, you know, who's a self-declared socialist and, and unapologetically arguing for a much larger role for government. They are very popular in some parts of the United States right now in a way that the NDP just is not in Canada. Uh, I guess the question is, how does the NDP maybe try to benefit from some of that radicalism happening in the United States right now? Well, I think the question really for Jagmeet Singh is, has he been able to carry the momentum of his win into his role as leader of the party. And I don't think we've necessarily seen that from him. And part of it is, you know, the the, the lack of cash that they have as a party. And so the idea of an election for them, I think, is not necessarily, you know, one they want to answer and they don't want to head into an election. But, you know, it's also the fact that they're unwilling to be, you know, unabashed supporters of labor efforts, of rights for, for workers, um, of speaking in the language of socialism. Part of the challenge of that is that the American socialists are asking for some of the things Canada already has. They're asking for universal health care. They're asking for expanded sick leave. They're asking for things that a lot of Canadians, depending on where you are in the country, already have. So what does that kind of socialism that is popular in the NDP amongst young women who largely support the NDP, where is that going to come from for Jagmeet Singh? How is he going to articulate that? And so I think that's really the question for the NDP, the Liberals, and the Conservatives. In that mess video message from Aaron O'Toole on Labor Day, he was speaking about class. And, you know, all three of them have backed down off the questions of race, but I think are going to spend the next few months, election or no, talking about the class impact that this uh, pandemic has had and how that has affected different people depending on where you are. They're possibly going to go after the middle class, but I think the liberals with the teases that they put out about the budget are maybe returning to Justin Trudeau's attempts at that fairness agenda, at going after the wealthy, at expanding social programs, and are maybe going to now listen to what the NDP have to say about questions around a universal basic income, expanded transit supports, green tax credits, all of those things. So I think for Jagmeet saying he's always pulled back on some of the uh, NDP's agenda, but now has a window and an opportunity to be a little bit more aggressive and more vociferous in his support of what the NDP has to offer. How are we doing economically right now? So you're right. This is the biggest downturn ever in our history. And it's also notable for the fact that it hit women and low paid workers hardest first and their climb back has been very muted. 
compared to other re forms of rebounding. So what we're witnessing is, yes, a bounce back, but the bounce back itself is slowing down. And one could say, given where we're at in the cycle of the season and flu season coming up and people now starting to get together again in classrooms and in bars and so on and so forth, this is probably as good as it gets. We're not likely to see the same rate of a bounce back as we have previously, which should give us all pause. Trevin, let me put you to work here. Do you agree with Armin on where we're at right now economically? So I think where we're at is that we've entered this second phase of the economic aspects of the pandemic, um, where our recovery is going to be characterized by our economy operating below capacity. So the first phase was obviously basically putting our economy into a medically induced coma where, where we shut a number of businesses and we saw these historic declines in GDP and job losses, et cetera. Um, as provinces and territories started to reopen and businesses started to reopen, we obviously saw a bounce back uh, in terms of jobs, in terms of growth, uh, in terms of consumer confidence as well. Um, but we haven't gotten back up to pre-COVID levels and, and we're not even that close to doing so. Um, and so what we're seeing right now is that there's just this gap between you know the initial rebound and what's actually going to be necessary to get to initial recovery, to actually get to full recovery. Uh, and so, you know, in terms of the projections, most people are probably looking at early 2022 when, when we get back to normal, when we get back to pre-COVID levels. Um, but as Armin mentioned, there are a few different variables um, that might accelerate or slow down that process. Uh, first of all is definitely if there's a second wave. Um, and that's that's going to be a very bad case scenario. Uh, but secondly, is also what the government response will be. Um, and certainly we have a throne speech coming up uh, in this month as well. And then we'll see uh, whether the government puts in place uh, what will actually get us towards growth. Um, and then thirdly, there's there's also uh, looking at the international scenario, which will have a huge impact on Canada and, and all Canadians as well, um, particularly with the U.S. election in November. Well, Jennifer, maybe I can get you to pick up the story. Uh, people are wondering, when do we get back to normal, whatever normal means? As you look at things, what do you come up with? I, I wish I had a firm timeline that I could give folks. Um, you know, I, I think the, the stage that we're in right now, it's not full recovery, right? We're in kind of that rehab stage after having uh, having gone through that medically induced coma. I'm going to borrow a term that's gaining some traction in the United States and talk about this as sort of a K-shaped recovery, meaning some sectors, some workers are are doing not bad. If you're a higher wage earner, actually, you've you've definitely made up all of the losses in terms of, of your hours. Um, but we're still seeing 1.8 million workers who are unemployed or haven't regained all their pre-COVID hours. Unemployment is still over 10%. You know, the slope of the employment gains is starting to flatten. This is not the curve that we want to be flattening. <laughs> Um, and there are big gaps that we're starting to see. So there's this real bifurcation in terms of who's actually participating in some of the, the recovery right now. Big gaps by gender, as Armin has mentioned, by income level, whether you have kids, racialized and indigenous Canadians as well. And frankly, um, you know, the data is starting to show uh, where you live in the country is also uh, going to be important. So it's a, it's a really tricky spot that we're in right now. I, I my concern is not only do we get back to where we were in terms of the aggregate, but do we bring everybody along with us? Avery, I gather we're still down a million jobs. What's your sense about what it would take to get those million people back into the workforce? So unfortunately, I think what we've done here is we've picked the low-hanging fruit and, and now we need a ladder to get the rest of the tree. Um, so what I mean by that is the jobs that we quickly recovered are in sectors where uh, we can operate reasonably well with social distancing. I mean, I think you see some of our, your guests here are sitting at home. 
Uh, so there's lots of people who can work from home and they're in the sectors where you can do that. Uh, we've reopened stores. And I think one of the things that rescued the economy, I, I like to say it was a masked man. It was the fact that uh, we had superheroes running around with masks that let us open actually more the economy successfully than we might have thought back in April. But the problem is some sectors, things like concert halls, convention centers, airlines, uh, things where there's a lot of personal contact no matter how you slice it, those sectors are basically at zero. I mean, they're not in a recession. They're in a depression in terms of the number of flights, uh, wedding halls, and so on. There's a lot of sectors that are basically still at zero. And I'm afraid that without the ladder to pick the high fruit, and I think the ladder is a vaccine or a treatment, rather than some magical government program, the best we're going to do for a while for those sectors is help people out with, uh, with government assistance. Peter, how strong a, a sense of the damage done to children by being out of school for so long do you think your profession currently has? Well, I think we have a real problem. I mean, there is a fair bit of literature uh, emphasizing how resilient kids are in the context of disaster. Um, but this is a unique uh, situation where the social isolation that Ronnie mentioned has gone on for a long time. We don't have a lot of experiences about that. Uh, and it does suggest that this could have long-term consequences unless we begin to repair the social isolation that the kids have experienced over the last six months or so. Can we talk, uh, Ronald, about how increased screen time is um, affecting either positively or negatively uh, children right now in the province of Ontario? What are you finding? So I think we need to first start that pre-pandemic uh, scientists from across the world, including our own scientists from SickKids and Unity Health, have shown that screen time is already having a negative impact on children. And now I just want you to practically think it through that children, or at least some children, and even moving forward, will now sit for hours in front of the computer because they need to teach, they need to be taught, and need to learn. Mm -hmm. And if they then keep isolated, from their friends, their only way to interact with them is through either social media and FaceTime or the phone. So we are dealing again with screen time. So we are now looking at a number of children who may sit in front of any type of screen for six to eight hours per day. So we are just exponentially accelerating and increasing the problem that we already had with screen time before the pandemic started. Could I get you then, Ronald, to offer the parents who are watching this some advice? Because, of course, at some point over the last few weeks, every parent had to indicate to his or her school board, uh, my kid is going to go back or my kid is not going to go back. Uh, all things being equal, if you're reasonably assured that school is a pandemically safe place to be, is there any question but that the kid should be going back? I think by and large... I would say kids should be going back to school, but it is at the end of the day, a very individual decision. Every family has to look what their school is able to put in place in terms of the bundled uh, measures in order to uh, mitigate risk from infection as much as possible. 
and also look at their own family situation as, as much as possible. By and large, I think if parents can get comfortable with the idea of sending their children back to school, then that should be a priority. But there's so many other measures that come into place here that generally recommending this without an individual approach uh, would be the wrong. Hmm. Andrea, we, we, we've sort of been focusing on right now uh, children missing their friends as, uh, you know, the biggest problem that they're dealing with right now. But of course, the, the isolation during this pandemic uh, goes well beyond friends. Um, grandparents, for example, or older relatives are people or, or friends of parents, for example, uh, who might have been a part of kids' lives are, are probably not now because of the pandemic. And can you help us understand how that might be affecting young people today? Yeah, we did um, look at whether or not certain households were multi-generational households because um, we had some of that data in terms of household composition and we didn't find really any differences in terms of that. But again, with some of the text responses, a very consistent theme that was coming out was separation from family and isolation from uh, other extended family members and the impact not only on the child but on the caregivers themselves and losing all the community support so losing school and other supports in the community but also losing that contact and support from extended family members that also might provide some caregiving relief um, was a, a consistent message that came out uh, with the survey as well. So as much as kids may complain about going to visit their grandparents, they actually do miss them when they can't see them? I think so. <laughs> Absolutely, it's the same, yeah. It's Good to the know. Same with, it's the same with school. They complain about school, but now they miss school. Huh, interesting, okay. Let's, um, Sheldon, let's go to graphic three here if we can, because we're, um, we're going to show some more results from the uh, Ontario Parents Survey. Uh, this is not just on the kids, but on the, on the parents of the kids. 34% reported some loss of income. 46% reported that a household member had applied for financial help offered by the federal or provincial government. Uh, so that's a lot of people obviously covered off during the course of this pandemic. And let's go to the next one, graphic four. 57% of caregivers met the criteria for depression. 57% and 30% of caregivers reported moderate to high levels of anxiety. Okay, let's get into this. Uh, Ronald Cohen, how does this affect children? So thank you actually for sharing and showing these data because I think it tells us that children don't live in their own isolation. They're obviously part of the whole family. And the anxiety exists all in society and that translates to some of the anxiety within the family. I mean, you can probably imagine there's no single household uh, in Canada who hasn't been speaking about the coronavirus all the time. And then if you add on additional stresses like financial instability or potential uh, problems with going back to work, and now with the kids going back to school, we need to really look at this as the children, as part of the family, and as we try to address the anxiety levels over the next few months particularly, it is the children, but it's also their parents, and we need to support them as much as we support the children. 
And that's just some of what we covered this week on the agenda. For more, including those conversations in full, you can always visit our website. That's tvo.org or our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash the agenda or our Twitter feed. That's twitter.com slash the agenda. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is brought to you by the Chartered Professional Accountants of Ontario. CPA Ontario is a regulator, an educator, a thought leader, and an advocate. We protect the public. We advance our profession. We guide our CPAs. We are CPA Ontario. And by viewers like you. Thank you.